This week, Ghostlight. Written by Mark Platt. Directed by Alan Waring. My biggest complaint? Nimrod makes no mention of Orb and never brags about how many skins he has. You're listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous married couple who discuss Doctor Who from a generally progressive, feminist, and social justice-oriented perspective. While we try to be sensitive, we generally don't consider this to be a safe space. Spoilers, naughty language, a general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat, and other adult content are likely found within. Okay, but so the Bible shit starts there. <laughs> and welcome to episode 93 of Boy Spaceman, a Doctor Who Love Story. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Ghost Light. Sorry, it's been a little while since we've given you any Doctor Who content, but that's because uh, we take a little break. But uh, we're back. We're talking about Ghost Light. That's Shayna. Jack Graham is giggling in the background. And we've already started talking about Ghost Light, so we might as well just uh, get into it. Podcast boyfriend. Yay. I'm back, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> I'm back to ruin a perfectly good episode of Voice Space Man. No. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that the audience that only shows up for your episodes is really complaining right now. So, you know. <laughs> Who are you, you strange, strange people? <laughs> we are rather strange, although uh, per- perhaps not as strange I, as the I wasn't talking to you. I wasn't oh. talking to you. <laughs> No one was asking for your input, Daniel, clearly. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. I completely understand. Um, so, yeah, today we're going to be talking about Ghost Light. And um, I'm basically going to listen to these two brilliant people talk for a while, I think. Um, I do have some thoughts about this. I do have some notes. But, um, uh, Jack, you definitely were, like, pumped about this. You actually consider this one of your favorites. Is that correct? This is one of my favorites, definitely. This is sometimes my favorite. I mean, let's say, in, in keeping with the text that we're talking about, the uh, you know Jack's favorites. That's very fluid, and uh, you know you can't really nail it down into uh, narrow, fixed categories. I don't believe in that. That's not how the world works. So I can't give you a, a fixed, eternal top ten with you everything know everything changes. Every... Jack, everything changes. Exactly. So I can't rank it all forever. But you know, to the extent that I have a favorite of the classic series, anyway, this is probably it. It, it most of the time, this is my absolute favorite classic Doctor Who. Yeah. Well, uh, so so uh, I guess I guess we'll just start with that. Um, why? Why? Not that, I'm, um, not that I'm arguing with that necessarily, but you know, w- what is it about this one that elevates it above other stories for you? Well, it's kind of got everything. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful production. I'm not going to pretend there aren't problems with it. There are problems with the production, mainly to do with the fact that there's not enough of it. You know, I, if only they'd been able to extend this to four episodes. They wanted to. They were told they weren't allowed to. So they had to squeeze a script that was too long down into three. And it it makes it, it ruins the pace in places. You get conversations cut off that you'd like to see the rest of. You know, there, there are problems like that. Um, the music is mixed a bit badly and sometimes so it drowns out the dialogue. There's all sorts of problems. But generally speaking, this is an amazing production. I mean, the acting's amazing. The script is 
absolutely brilliant. I really do. I really love the music, even though so sometimes it's too loud. That's not the composer's fault. Mm. Um, the production design is fantastic, uh, and I, I mean, you, you've got Sylvester and Sophie at almost peak cute. Um, it's just playing those I don't characters. Know how, I mean, can you get more cute than that? I don't know. I don't know. It's been tried. I'm not sure it's possible. Um, <laughs> and the wonderful character. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to separate the characters and the actors, but there is a separation. And there's sort of, it's like you look at Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred playing the Doctor and Ace, and you think, I love all four of those people. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then apart from that, I just it's. I mean, anybody who knows my stuff knows why I love this. It's gothic. It's surreal. It's angry about class and race and gender and hierarchy and all this stuff that I'm that I'm just obsessed with. And it's really science and religion and and reductionism and all these things that fascinate me. And, yeah, it's just it's just Jack Catnip, this stuff, you know, and I it came on the telly when I was, what, 13, 12, something like that. And I remember being blown away by it at the time. And it's never it's never left my head, you know, just love it. Well, yeah, yeah. I, just for myself, I mean, I'll say that uh, I'm probably coming at this as the as the slight skeptic, and not even like I really like this. Um, I think for me, um, the first time I watched this, I got very little out of it. You know, just kind of that. You know, watching it, enjoyed it on the kind of like what the fuck level, but didn't <laughs> you know like liked elements of it, but really didn't get how the story fit together at all. Rewatching it today, I definitely. Um, it, it really is one that needs to be watched a couple of times to really properly appreciate. Um, and I had kind of read some commentary and listened to some podcasts about it to kind of like help me figure out just kind of the basic mechanics of the story a little bit more. Um, so I really do um, enjoy this. I'm not going to be the, like the great skeptic on this. Um, but uh, it's interesting that even at 13, you found this to be um, that compelling. Mm. Um, but bear in mind, of course, I was a very odd thirteen-year-old. So, well, as were we all. I was. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I, you don't get to be special for that here, Jack. No, no, absolutely <laughs> no. But I think, I think all the, you know, without wishing to sound the slightest bit uh, geek elitist about this, I think no. we probably all agree that our particular way of being weird at thirteen maybe wasn't the usual way in which people are odd at 13 i know that i i wasn't odd in the usual sense for a 13 year old well in some of the usual senses for a 13 year old and then some other senses that weren't usual side note shane has been watching a show called very british problems (laughs) yeah jack makes so much more sense no i'm kidding (laughs) i'm just like you sound so british according to the television Mm. um She's saying you sound like a British stereotype, Jack. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's no. okay. Well, you just apparently have very well-known British anxiety uh, about people. Apparently, that's what the show has taught me: that British people just really um, don't know how to deal with other people. Um, coming back to the the show, <laughs> living here, I would say that's very, very true. See. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's island people, apparently. It is. We're an island race, and hence, uh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> and hence, you know, have certain essentialist characteristics that are typology, right. that are typographic. <laughs> they're in the blood. They're, they're completely unchangeable, um, except right. for uh, with uh, magic uh, mind powers. So. It's an immutable truth about people from Britain. <laughs> okay. No, but Okay, Chena, Chena, tell me, tell me about Ghostlight. How did you, how did this uh, strike you today? I don't. I don't remember if it was like five minutes or less than that when I was like, ooh, I'm hooked. 
Um, I really like it. I definitely will agree that the second watch through made a whole lot more sense and it helped that I read the Wikipedia summary um, to get some characters straight. But I just, so my big thing is I uh, apparently decided to do a bunch of uh, biblical research, a bunch meaning like I read a couple articles, but Nimrod is a biblical name. Yeah. Uh, we have the the mother and um, the daughter, Gwendolyn and Gwendolyn's mom, uh, <laughs> literally get turned to stone. Um, so that very mirrors Lot's wife. And so, like, I was going through all these metaphors and really focused on the kind of balance between uh, religious mythos and science and how science is always changing. Um, I, I, I just had a lot of fun, uh, honestly, as somebody who likes, first of all, the just the kind of, like you said, the gothic uh, lushness of the time period and the setting and the kind of the style of the episode. Um, but there's a, a little bit of just enough over-the-top uh, actually having characters named Light and control and playing with those figures. I don't know. There's, there's just a lot going on. I definitely understand the criticism that comes from not having quite enough time to explain it all or get it all. Uh, but there's a part of me that doesn't mind that as much as the really bloated episodes that mm. we sometimes get. Well, it, it sounds like, you, you know, you, you, you went back to it a, again immediately um, because I, I suppose the first time round, you know, it was sufficiently interesting that you wanted to you wanted to come back to it, and that's I think yeah. it's very much Doctor Who as made for the age when people like me were sat at home recording it on their VHS yeah. recorders and then watching it a hundred times. You know, it, it's it's Doctor Who made for that um, that generation, uh, and I did that, of course. I you know I recorded it and then watched it a hundred times. Yeah, um, and it's yeah. I think you I think you get the sense of it the first time round. At least that that was my. That was my feeling, uh, it, it, you know, watching it back in the day, age 13, I didn't quite really get every little, you know, jot and tittle of the plot. And I still don't, to be honest with you. I mean, I would struggle to explain to you in literal terms exactly what's going on with that snuff box, you know, but I, I, the whole thing hangs together. I think it's logic is, is it's associative and it's dreamlike and it's symbolic logic rather than strict mm -hmm. plot logic, but it does that very well. You know, it's a, to the extent that it carries you through. It, it makes it exciting and interesting, even working mostly on that kind of logic. I would, well, it's, I kind would of a, it's kind of a haunted house story, right? I mean, it's yeah. sort of, I mean, it's, it's all like portents and signs and, mm. you know. And um, it's also pantomime. Mm -hmm. um like like all the best doctor who it's it's also pantomime and you know you don't want to analyze the uh the, the plot of a pantomime too closely um the, the pantomime works on visual and 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 linguistic puns and you know mm -hmm. ideas are, are what power the plots of pantomimes and it's the same here i think you literally uh have a character who travels at the speed of thought and we have that idea played with a few times even after then so that you know something disappears just as a passing thought, uh, the we'll get there. Um, but it, it made me focus on what was going on very differently because I didn't care so much exactly how all the puzzle pieces fit together. I was much more focused on the character story one that we have with Ace, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah. and 
you know, I like Ace, and d- therefore Daniel has not let me watch much of her. Uh, <laughs> Ace is the greatest. It's so Ace is just the good. best companion. I mean, yeah. to be fair, to be fair, the reason is because Shannon would just watch all the Ace and like gorge herself, and then wouldn't have any more Ace to watch. It's so, not yeah. entirely true, but I mean, she is so uh, she's she's really fucking queer. Uh, I mean, they. Within two seconds, she's got a best friend, and she's put her in a tuxedo. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just like, and then they're wrestling. And yeah. I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> I want to come join that party. It looks like fun. Um, but in addition to that, there's just the fact that, you know, Seven and Ace like each other. They respect each other. Um, they're, they have fun with each other, though. Uh, and even when Ace is put in a dress... You know she doesn't like a dress, and she still retains her personality. Um, and that's something you can't say for all of the companions. Um, but there's a lot uh, that I like about her uh, throughout the story. So I don't know. Well, somebody let's, wants to. Yeah, well, let's let's um. There, let's just start off. I'm gonna kind of basically mention the kind of two big issues that people have with this story just to knock them down and then we can talk about all the great things about it if that's okay with everybody mm-hmm. um the first one we've already kind of talked about a little bit is that it's it's very dense um the plot maybe doesn't quite make sense but maybe it does um we've kind of discussed that i think we'll kind of keep talking about that as we go on the well, other does, one is does the, the of, does the plot of a kafka novel make sense well, you know. does the plot of any Doctor Who story really make sense? I mean, I think I think I know what's going on in the Rebus operation. I think that's the only one where I really have a clear idea about what's going on <laughs> in the plot at any given time. So what don't, like, okay, what don't you get about this story? I, I'm confused, because it kind of fits together relatively well, so I'm like, there's a huge plot hole that I'm just overlooking because I don't want to see it. Um, I mean, well, the, you know, what the snuff box is really supposed to be. Um, well, I do actually, I do actually have an answer to that, if you want to hear it. Sure, sure. Go ahead. I mean, I don't, I don't really care that much about the details of the plot, um, but please go ahead. I'd love to hear. It. As I was, as I warned you earlier, I think the the plot works on dream logic, associative, symbolic logic, and I think the snuffbox. I think what's going on there is that I mean, you have some clues in the dialogue. It's never explained, but there are clues in the dialogue. Like the Doctor says to Nimrod, only the madman may see the path clearly in the tangled forest, right? So the only person, despite the fact that he doesn't know who he is or what's going on or who anybody is, the only person, until the Doctor works it out, who's got a clear idea what's going on is Redford's, because he's gone mad. You know, his, his imperialism has driven him insane, uh, just like uh, lots of people in colonialist fiction. Um, and so he, he sees it. He's seen light. Light, somehow, he got down there and he saw it. It drove him mad, and his madness is what allows him to see the situation clearly. He's literally enlightened in his madness. And so the other clue in the dialogue is that light travels at the speed of thought. So if Redfuss is the one whose thoughts are clear because he's seen light, then that gives light a conduit, you know, unconsciously, because light's asleep. He has to be asleep to make it work because it's subconscious. Light has a conduit out of the basement through Redford's thoughts, which manifest in Redford's snuff box. It's a little box with his initials on it. You That's... want you want a less abstract explanation? Oh yeah, go on then. I I just think it's you know clearly he went insane because he ran into light. Maybe light has some kind of radioactive property about him. I yeah, mean that, that's as yeah. good a Doctor Who explanation as we ever get in that, especially that and, time period. And now Jack feels pretentious. <laughs> No, your reading is absolutely lovely, and I enjoy it quite. 
bit. And I'm not <laughs> saying it's not there. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think sometimes uh, I'm a bit more forgiving with my science fiction, um, especially in in terms of like episodes like this. That's it's clearly a mix between, like you said, a haunted house genre, uh, if you were, and and more other kind of classic science fiction. Um, there's definitely a heart of darkness feel to it, and I think that that's what you're rating um, with your descriptions of the snuff box, which I think are totally spot on as well but if if there's just a straightforward explanation that that was mine in my head well they kind of work together don't they really if one is the literal version and one is the more metaphorical version i think they actually uh they actually uh chime quite nicely Mm. well and radioactivity is the breakdown of alpha particles into beta particles it's the breakdown of like one element into another evolution that kind of that kind of works as a uh sort of uh metaphor for the kind of process of enlightenment um hang hang on hang on a minute have we just converged upon agreement from three completely different angles (laughs) we might have you've blown my mind (laughs) (laughs) hold on hold on on. this is only spaceman we're not supposed to agree here come on This is uh, what you were talking about in the in the other webcast we did, um, multi-positionality or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, inner subjectivity. That's the one. Yeah, we're all we're all looking at the same uh, same evidence and just kind of bringing our own perspective to it, and then kind of all interpreting it the same way. Mm. Um, although, um, yeah, no, I I could, I mean, I I kind of get all of that. I mean, I guess I guess for me, it's like I don't really care that I don't really know, like what the like army of uh maids that kind of all carry guns are there for i kind of don't care about the stuff that doesn't make sense to me because the stuff that i mean it, it all just kind of works on a visual level mm. um but that is sort of that is one of the two things that is often leveled against this story is that i don't know what's going on um the other big thing is the kind of doctor ace relationship which i just wanted to bring up just because I think for the most part, it's a very, very good relationship. Um, but this is the one where the doctor is kind of basically being a dick to Ace. Um, a lot of people will say this is kind of the doctor being abusive to Ace by forcing her to confront this uh, trauma in her past um, against her consent. Yeah, uh, I, I had this in my notes as well that I wanted to to ask you guys about. I mean, do we – I have my own thoughts on this, but I, I, want, I want to hear what you guys think. Do we, do we give him a pass? And if we give him a pass, would we give the 11th Doctor a pass for doing the same thing, if we're honest? <laughs> uh, Shane, I, since, since I don't think you've uh, read as much on this as, as Jack and I have, no. um, I'd, like, I'd like you to go first, if that's okay. So I guess, I mean, I, I read slightly of this, I guess, and I didn't quite realize that we're meant to know that the Doctor knew the whole time that she had a, a past with this location, watching it a second time around, it still doesn't feel malicious, but that has so much to do with the already established relationship and just the way that um, Seven and Ace get along with each other. Yeah. Putting it in the perspective where you say, okay, she had a traumatic event and he is forcing her to go back and address it, yeah, it's a dick move, but like, what year was it made? <laughs> well, eighty nine. Eighty nine. I mean, I, 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 I just see don't. This. I don't I, think that we have an understanding of kind of psychological well, triggers well, in is, quite the same way, and it doesn't feel fair to put that on Doctor Who. 
uh, like an episode. Is he kind of being a dick um, and being an over controlling father figure? Yeah, but that's kind of the point of the episode is how those over controlling father figures fuck up. Um, and ultimately, Ace is the one who kind of understands what's going on and makes sense of it all. So, is it a dick move? Yes. Does it end up end up giving her characterization and agency that she didn't have otherwise? Actually, yes. So I I don't know. I think eh, I'm eh, I'm clearly on a fence. I I have a defense of this that's completely separate from that, um, which I kind of just. Um, because this is the one, this is one of the ones that gets charted out whenever you make any complaints about the 11th Doctor's treatment of anybody, is, well, the 7th Doctor was a dick to Ace at Ghostlight, you know? Um, <laughs> the, the Ace is explicitly training, is being trained by the Doctor at this point. I mean, he's explicitly giving her challenges and, and testing her to see how she achieves them. I mean, you know, at least in kind of the Cartmel Master Plan, the whole thing is like she's going to eventually try to become a Time Lord, right? So I see this as like he's kind of being a schoolmaster who's given her a lesson she doesn't want to do right now. It's like he gave her a really hard algebra problem that she's just annoyed at. Well, it's sort of the way I process this. Like, yes, it is, it is you know, uh, triggering or difficult or not safe for her. It's a kind of emotionally um, not the best thing for her. But it's, you know, to me, it falls into that kind of like schoolmaster-student relationship, much more so than, you know, anything that we've seen. Otherwise, the Doctor I agree with kind of your point of view, Daniel. Um, it doesn't feel like he is goading her to, con- to face something that uh, is threatening to break her, you know? It-, it feels much more like he is saying, you have something in your past that you- we need to talk about, and um, you don't... It- it's almost like a purging uh, of... Um, the bad past to be able to get to uh, the the good future. And again, the episode is about evolution, rebirth, um, change versus like these, you know, unchangeable truths that we think we might hold. So everything kind of feels like it is appropriate in the episode to me because of these different levels of um, relationships that are going on in this story. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, stuff you've both said um, sounds a, a lot like some of the things I've noted down. There's, there, there's something in the relationship, and it's, it's of course, it's not entirely. It's In these sorts of situations with Doctor Who, it's usually just in how the actors try to salvage it. I think for once we've got actors doing something with, you know, text that actually supports it. Mm. There is a lot of implied consent going on here, isn't there? Um, between the Doctor and, and mm. Ace. There's a lot of them both knowing that they're kind of both tacitly agreeing to play this game of teacher, pupil, parent, daughter, guru, trainee thing. Um, there's, there's, I mean, the Doctor constantly takes Ace to dangerous places, to places where she's going to be in danger, where she's going to see scary things, and she, she's up for that. Um, and they've, they, you know, it's implied that they've just been talking about the fact that she was in a haunted house once, and she doesn't want to talk about that. And then the next thing, you know, oh look, here we are in a spooky Victorian English mansion. You know, I, I think there's a. I mean, it, this is maybe special pleading. I don't know, but it seems like there's a lot of implied consent going on. Um, I think it could be better. I think 
you can argue that something the story lacks is sort of a moment later on where Ace has a breakthrough, you know, um, where she has a cathartic end moment and sort of conquers her fears. You can argue that it needs that. I'm, I'm actually not sold on that because I think it's, I like the way the episode, the, the story does it instead, which is that she sort of demonstrates fear and growing understanding and then conquering fear all the way through in stages. So you never get the sort of cheesy bit at the end where she looks up and says, yeah, I'm not afraid anymore, you know. But, yeah. You, you... It turns out that fear will make companions of all of us, Jack. But that's, there's that as well, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Back reference there. No. <laughs> but the, doc- the Doctor is a bit of a dick in this one. He has this dodgy deal that he makes with Control as well, basically, you know, because he wants her to get light up into the house and, you know, how he's actually going to deliver on giving her her freeness you know he's, he just sort of fudges that well you know I, I don't know but again you know i think that the the fact that the doctor doesn't know when he makes the deal precisely how he's going to deliver it deliver it to her doesn't mean that he doesn't fully intend to do it somehow i mean this is the doctor we're talking about it you know he's quite within his rights to just say to himself well okay i might be giving her the impression that i have more of a plan than i actually do but you know i'll get away with it i always do well, and that seems to be a bit of a character trait for the Seventh Doctor. And again, mm. I haven't seen as much of him. Um, but this kind of, he has a quality that you just kind of feel like he is reassuring you all along. He might not know how he's getting there, but he knows where he's going. Mm. Um, and so with his relationship with Ace, we we may question how he's going about things, but ultimately if she doesn't question him, we don't question him. Um, could that be an abusive relationship? Absolutely. Does it necessarily mean it's an abusive relationship? No. I think we've kind of identified some ways that the familial I mean, slash professor student relationship affects that. But um, if you bring this forward and have this, like if, if series 10 had this exact scene in it, and had this exact setup in it, you would absolutely say, oh, yeah, this is hugely problematic. But that's because 2016 is not 1989. Exactly. Mm. Um, and I think that we, I think it's fair to interpret television that's made, I think that taking this scene out of its context in 1989 and pretending that we have to interpret this this sequence the same way that we would interpret something in 2016 is i mean it is kind of that whole thing that we kind of come back to over and over again which is that the context matters and this is a show made in 1989 it's better than the culture in which it's embedded in a lot of really important ways and i think that judging it like like taking it and judging it you know as stated without that context is i mean is a problematic reading I understand people that will, I understand that new critical approach, and I understand, like, if that just really triggers you and you can't deal with that, I'm fine oh, with that. I'm not going to criticize anyone for that. But I do think that that's, I don't think we're forced into that reading. And I think that if you're going to read it that way, then there's very little classic here that you can really, like, appreciate yeah. at all. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in unreasonable demands, you know, demanding the impossible of things and then savagely criticizing them because they're not perfect. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strategy I, I like. I think that can be fruitful. But also, you do have to remember that there's a context for things, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you, can re- you can view things in context and ad- admit that they're in the context of a particular time without giving them a pass, you know, the... Uh, the the understanding of why it's a deeply flawed representation 
doesn't imply a, uh, a you know condoning of it. That's elementary, really, or it should be. I mean, it's, I, it's almost like we can have we can entertain dual thoughts at the same time. It, we it, can you think that we can yeah. entertain like it, this, like like yes, it meant that it's problematic. It meant that it's not perfect, but also appreciate it for what it is. Gee, I can't <laughs> imagine, and I can't imagine why you know when we have a current showrunner who has all these problematic things that is continuing to make the television and that might hypothetically listen to us versus this thing which already exists. I can't imagine why we would talk to one of those people more than the other. I'm really going to get, I'm really going to go yell at Andrew Cartmel now about this, uh, about this episode of television. You know, I'm sure that will, I'm sure he will go and correct it now that I've complained to him yeah. and his future yeah. episodes of Dr. <laughs> anyway, um, I just wanted to uh, bring is, that up because this is, it is an interesting thing, actually, because Andrew, Andrew Cartmel, I don't know if you've ever, ever read any of his other Doctor Who stuff that he wrote for, because like, he wrote um, some of the novels in the 90s. He wrote a trilogy of Seventh Doctor and Ace, uh, sort of near future cyberpunk novels within the New Adventures. Did, did you, are you familiar I, with those I have at all? Not, I have not read any of the New Adventures. I have been meaning to maybe dip my toes into those. And uh, mm. I don't know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring you back on and we'll talk about those at some point, Jack, if you're interested. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention at this point, it's been a long time since I read them, but I'll just mention at this point that all three of those novels are chock-filled with deeply disturbing uh, sexualized violence against women. Sure. Well, you said it was cyberpunk, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean... <laughs> Is kind it, of tautology. It, it was cyberpunk in the nineties. I mean, that's. I, I mean, should like, not like, be laughing at that. There, there's, there. I, I apologize. I, God, I'm gonna have to trigger warning this now. There's so much rape in nineties cyberpunk. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I read a lot of it, you know, as a teenager. So, like, I'm fully aware. And to, to a degree, yeah, that comes with the genre. You can criticize the whole genre and say, like, yeah, that was a really shitty thing, and nobody should ever read it. That's fine. But like to to a certain degree, saying like, well, yeah, but that's it's 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 like blaming slasher movies for like cutting people into pieces, you know. Sort well, of thing. Like, and that's what we came here for, to a certain okay, degree. And you know? like, okay, let me put it this way: I'm not going to criticize something for having representations of popular understandings of sublimated kink desire and fetish desire, uh, especially not in 1989. I think that the uh, this episode, understandably, I'm not saying that it's a positive or negative thing, but understandably has some problematic things that anything would have had in 1989. A- and if you are going to be someone who critiques pop culture, the, the definition of really looking into pop culture and looking at pop culture studies is, you know, extend the word. It's not just pop culture. It's popular culture. It's important because it's popular. Um and what we immediate uh, uh, bleh, what we look at you know at the end of the day is what made it popular why is it still popular um and what might make it not be popular that that is pop culture so looking at it and saying it has this thing that is problematic that might may turn people off of it now it's that's fair i completely understand it but it's it's kind of an unfair critique for that time period. If you wanted to say compared to a current episode, honestly, I think that this does better than most of the current episodes. 11 and 12, for that matter, and 10, to be fair. All of them. If we want to call this one instance as abusive as we're saying it is, nine, like, fuck contemporary who, all the doctors are abusive. They force their companions to do stuff they're uncomfortable with all the time. 
And but with, uh, without this sort of undercurrent of implied consent to the trainee relationship absolutely. That's, that's in the performances. And uh, I think if you are going to have a moment like that, um, what better context to put it in than Victorian society that is all about rules for rules sake. Um, and, you know, he starts out immediately calling her a noble savage. Um, and she's like, what? Uh, and he's talking about hiding her ankles. And it's clear that she's uncomfortable in that moment and that he is saying hugely inappropriate things. But it's very clearly tongue in cheek. Everybody's in on the moment, um, except for um, poor, poor, not all there safari man. I forget his name. I'm awful. <laughs> Redvers. Lavers? Redvers? Redvers, yeah. Yeah. But this story does a lot of this riffing on the tropes and the and the language of the time and the literature of the time playfully riffing on on those genre tropes. Um you know which which contain all sorts of you know problematic uh, things to use that tired old word problematic. Um but without any endorsement because they exist in the context of the rest of the story and the rest of the story I'd, I'd argue is very deeply critical of the the ethos that they come from you know yeah and you the other thing about this story i think is you have to view it in the context of doctor who this is only three years out from the end of the uh colin baker and perry era oh, um Jesus. which is you know compared to this the colin baker and perry sixth doctor and perry era it might as well just be somebody repeatedly punching nicola bryant in the face while the doctor runs around going hooray for rape culture you know it, yeah. th- this is th- this is the sh- this is the show slowly crawling out of that pit you know and doing a pretty good job of it yeah it honestly reminds me a lot of and i mean actually i should be saying this in reverse but you know what i mean uh it reminds me a lot of the werewolf episode with ten and rose now tooth and claw tooth and claw uh so really i'm saying tooth and claw clearly uh was hearkening back to this episode i think in a lot of ways in the um, same way that this one harks back to talons of wang chang but I, uh, you haven't seen that yet have you shane no, I, I don't know if I could make it through that. I studied in China for a semester, and it's just long enough for me to probably snort and not be able to listen to a goddamn thing. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of angry Shane noises. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to cover that one at some point. Uh, maybe as a live commentary without Shane having seen it before. <laughs> you sadist. Just get me inebriated. We all know Daniel's a sadist, for God's sake. Uh, <laughs> we're on episode 93 of proving that fact <laughs> he, he deliberately puts you in dif- you know difficult situations without you realizing it and it's a kind of initiative test all the time yeah and then and, and, and then you, you come out a stronger and better podcast. person and you come out a stronger and better person by you know, uh the process of that happening to you so therefore you know so it's okay <laughs> it's okay it's perfectly fine <laughs> and she continues to come back like that's i mean that's the other side right like like Ace doesn't like leave the doctor at the end of this or even, like, and, I mean, you know, it's, it's completely, I mean, I feel like we're talking too much about this just because it's like 30 seconds of the episode. Hey. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of part of the cultural conversation around this story that we kind of yeah. have to just deal with. So, and it, this story has become to an extent, a kind of a punching bag for people who want to bring it in so that they can defend some of the worst stuff that modern who has done. And I so just I think- don't understand that. I honestly, like, I, you, again, Daniel has dropped me into this conversation without giving me any context. So I really don't understand why people say that because I was actually um, really impressed and interested by the interpersonal dynamics throughout the episode. Um, Not 
not in the least because there are a lot of women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are a lot of female characters. So that made me happy. Well, um, Shannon, would you like to talk about acing Gwendolyn <laughs> on that level? Uh, so that is my only plot question as far as puzzle pieces go is I don't know if Gwendolyn was a puppet the whole time. I, you know, like, I just want to make sure in my mind that that ship stays on course forever. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah. I don't read Gwendolyn as being completely helpless and, and hypnotized, even when she's under, you know. Right. Um, Although I don't agree with the doctor that she enjoyed killing. Ooh, and, I, I, I think uh, I do on myself. I don't know. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> well, but, the doctor could never have a companion who enjoyed killing. There certainly wouldn't be another companion that we could connect back with the noble savage stuff that we've been talking about as well, right? Victoria oh, never. Mores. I know. And of course, the, the doctor himself would never enjoy killing, would he? I mean, it's oh, not no, like never. he'd ever send one of his companions to the Cybermen to say, you know, oh, by the way, look how badass the doctor and I are. Look, here's your entire fleet exploding. The doctor yeah. would never do something That's like that to show happened. off, would he? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... And the show would never, ever ever think to have something like, I don't know, like a mind rape pregnancy that just gets dropped. Completely oh my God, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> but no, the, the real problem is that my pregnancy, I don't know. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Turned out I knew her as my best friend at school. So that's all right then. Yeah, that was fine. That just tries everything. Relationship with my child. It was just when I was a child. Yeah. Everything and then, is okay. And then again, <laughs> she was 40. <laughs> and a fucking amy, my best friend <laughs> yeah amy did mourn she went through terrible mourning she just did it off screen which is fine she almost ruined her modeling career because of it <laughs> <laughs> she okay. smeared her mascara in that episode therefore it's all justified Come therefore on. intense okay. emotional trauma so one of the things i really liked about Gwendolyn and Ace. Yeah. Yes. We have a female friendship. Yeah. Like, drop the, you know. <laughs> drop them changing behind the uh, thing together. Drop my queer fan fiction. Um, no, no, I'm I'm quite happy to go into that in detail. Or. or <laughs> in very explicit detail. Oh, honey. <laughs> oh, honey, you saw those wrestling scenes. Well, it's there just, was a, you know. That wasn't just wrestling. I mean, Ace clearly, like, there was a little bit of a leap into the arms at one point that was not like they were supposed to be falling over. But I was like, no, no. And they're, they're sort of cheekily quipping at each other the whole time they're doing it as well, aren't they? Yeah. You know, so I don't, I don't want to fighting, hurt you. Oh, oh you mean it'll be other. painless. Yeah. And Control's obviously enjoying it as well because she's off to one side bouncing around going, oh, me next, me next. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Control is like, I love Control. Control literally says, I don't like freeness, it bites. <laughs> and I was just like, I love you. And then like a second later, she's like, Lady Love. <laughs> <laughs> and I might not even get half of what she's really saying. Um, although I do. Uh, Control's I love how quickly Control goes from a character that is completely disabled by her situation to very quickly being the one in charge. Yeah. As soon as she's given an opportunity to be in charge, he's like, oh, fuck yeah. And she immediately makes fun of him, the guy who's kept her in prison. 
she kind of is like, fuck you, squire. <laughs> You're so good at this accent. Look at me. Yeah. I could kind of do it in one day, but I don't give a shit. Um, but that, that bit where she says to Josiah, you know, no one hurting control, not in gutter now. And she, she's looking him straight in the eyes and she says that. That that brings the hairs up on the back of my neck and I get a bit I get a bit damp eyed. You know, that's very she's that's very powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful to me. She's fought her way out of the depths, you know, and now she's looking that bastard in the face and saying, you know, I'm not down there anymore, I'm up here. It's it's incredible. I mean, if we want to talk really about the bigger story, we have some old white dudes playing with these people's lives like they're puppets mm. all because he's trying to write down what everyone looks like. So they can't change anymore. Right. Yeah. Cause it makes it too hard for the white guy to learn all these fucking new names and shit. Mm. Uh, you know, so he has to write them all down and he's just tired of writing things down and having to learn more. So really he's just going to freeze everyone in time. And then all the chicks say, fuck no. And they take over and they're like, let's go on a road trip. So well, I love yeah. this episode. It's basically it's, Thelma and Louise, except uh, <laughs> Ace and Gwendolyn. With the doctor just providing the motive power, really. Really? Um, I, one of the things that I, and I, I keep connecting it back to uh, season one, just because, you know, um, this, is, this is explicitly talking about a Victorian adventure character, right? Like yeah. you, you've got this, this very, um, you know, this, this <clears throat> idea of the Victorian scientist. And I do, and I mean, Darwin is name checked a few times. Um, but this idea of this kind of upper class, I mean, science at this time was done by upper class British white men. Like mm-hmm. that, those are the people like by and large who, you know, all of the things that end with law <laughs> or, you know, theory of, you know, something like that always have like some old British white guy's name on them. Um, almost mm. exclusively. And the reason being because they were the people who had the money. I mean, science was just a hobby that these guys undertook. And the we're connecting up that kind of imperialist impulse It's with this uh, sort of um, colonialist impulse, with this kind of scientific impulse, and um, connecting it all together in this one kind of character. But the Doctor himself comes from this same kind of tradition in its own, in, in its own very explicit way. So... The fact Which that is presumably now- why, in the dream logic of the tech, the way the dream logic of the text works, Josiah thinks the Doctor could be an ally. The first time he exactly. looks at the Doctor, he thinks, mm-hmm. "Ah, th- this guy will be my ally. Of course he will. I can pay him to to kill control." He thinks that there's no other reason for him to think that except that he sees a character who's from the same literary origins as, as him, uh, at least in form, and says, "Ah, uh, you know, a, a kinsman." Well, you're a you're a well-spoken man of science. You're a, yeah. you're a, you're a, you're you're another you know kind of middle-aged white guy like me. Therefore, you will share my values. Therefore, I mean, it's the same thing as like you know some dude with a beard telling me a racist joke. Like, I mean, it's it's the exactly. exact same impulse, you know. And I you think fit that into that's... this social class, and therefore you will share my values. I think that that's kind of the interesting part of it that really latched on to me is because it's a lot. I mean, the entire story is about privilege. And how privilege comes from perspective and how you have these different religious figures um, who kind of come in and try to project their point of view onto the science. Neither of our religious figures really 
well, neither of them make it to the end. So that says, uh, I guess, our kind of Nietzsche opinion on religious figures in this story. Um, the science, and I think what I like so much about it is the essential truth of the episode becomes, well, everything changes, and we're just here to kind of facilitate that change because there's this one dude who's just holding on to the past, and he's making it shit for everyone else. I keep going back to really simple, like, white guy bad um, dynamics that are in this. Which is uh, a perfectly fair generalization, historically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I mean as, a, as a criticism of just, like, patriarchy is bad... Yeah, that, that's that's all you really have to say. There's an old white guy and he's evil. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it feels like a really classic, simple like anti-Victorian patriarchy episode. Um, I mean, we talked a little well, yeah. bit about that with Horror Fang Rock as well. Yeah, um, and I yeah. did. Oh, that. I love. Yeah, I love Horror Fang Rock. <laughs> right, Jack and I are on the same page with you know. Make it kind of like a horror movie, except not, and I'm down. Connecting it back, I mean, and I really, it is funny how much of this, like, for me, rewatching it, I just kept thinking of earlier Doctor Who stories, because now I've, like, rewatched a bunch of them. And, like, connecting it back to Horror Fang Rock, or Towns of Wing Chang, if you want to do that one. Um, I mean, the fact that there is this kind of, like, civilized, you know, like, civilization versus the savages, and as complex as that whole conversation becomes... You know, they're, they're explicitly, you know, um, Ace being, like, barely dressed, so she's basically a harlot, you know, those sorts of ideas. I mean, they even they even explicitly reference Eliza Doolittle in this. Um, you mm. know, the Doctor refers to her as Eliza, you know, like, kind of jokingly. Um, yeah, which is another one of those references to the, uh, the the tropes and the literature of this period, and, the and, you know, by extension, the ideology of this period, although I think Pygmalion's a little bit after this, but, you, you know, the right. same sort of thing, which, um, you know, it's there as a game in the text, the game of references, because there's so many references in this script. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's there, but without endorsing the value system that it comes from, necessarily, although Bernard Shaw's an interesting, complex figure in that respect. But you know well, what I mean? Well, it, it's, he's, it's, it's calling it out to puncture, because it's yeah. presenting... You know, the Doctor isn't It isn't doing the... I mean, and that's the thing. Like, with Leela, they had the explicit idea of, well, let's do the Eliza Doolittle thing in Doctor Who, yeah. which they never actually did, but that was the sort of, like, genesis of that character. Here, it's like we're going to call that out. We're going to <laughs> then puncture that because, like, we, as an audience, do not in any sense believe that they should embrace these Victorian values and go get dressed in proper lady-like clothes. And, you know, we're totally with her being like, yeah, what do you, don't call me a lady, and then later she's, don't call me a gentleman, I ain't no gentleman, which is equally brilliant, I think. <laughs> I love uh, her. Um, you know, yeah. but but because we're on she Ace's side. She won't be pinned down, she won't be categorized. Well, she, and, well, there's that too, I mean, we should definitely get back to that, I mean, but but just the, 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 the idea that this story is explicitly about uh, criticizing those Victorian ideas through the character of Ace and through these kind of gender politics and through the queerness, if you think that that was um, explicit and, uh, you know, kind of intended by the, um, the, uh, the makers of the TV show, uh, definitely connects right back to that, uh, you know, kind of uh, science, you know, the, the Victorian inventor, the Victorian, uh, you know, moth collector sticking uh, pins in moths and putting them in boxes. Only now it's everything, not just moths. And this kind of like stamp collecting, this criticism of science mm. is stamp collecting, you know. Yeah. Well, it's 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 one of the unfortunate impulses of modernity to to categorize and to break things down into, uh, you know, category. I mean, 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always on about reductionism. Reductionism sometimes gets a bad rap because it, it can be a very powerful tool for scientists to use, as, a, as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, Daniel, because you actually are one as opposed to me. Um, but, you know, the, the actual the, the practice of reductionism as analysis can be, you know, it does incredible heavy lifting in science and it's very valuable and there's nothing wrong with it in itself. The problem is when people mistake the map for the territory and they start to think that because you can analyze something by breaking it down into little bits and then saying these, the, you know, and, and lab- sticking categories and labels all over them and making them easier to think about that way, that that in some way represents an ontological truth about the world, that the world is therefore made of little bits that we can then categorize very discreetly. Which not, you know, a lot of scientists and a lot of, um, you know, modern thinking is based upon that idea. And it's it's actually, if it's taken to that extreme, it's a very damaging idea. I mean, well, one, what, that, one, what that pan-reductionism misses, I mean, in just in a, in a single phrase, is emergent properties. Yeah, properties sure. that are not present in the individual, like, atomic, you know, the well, atoms, which I'm going to use in a general And it way, also, and miss, it also misses the... The, the social existence of things. Yeah. You know? And that's kind of um, what I was going to say is in the, in the language of the show, it misses the point that everything changes. Mm. We all evolve, even down to the slightest microbes are, are evolving every second, whatever the line was. Um, mm. I, I think within the context of the episode um, and within the context of just kind of the larger conversation we're having, uh, if you're missing that conversation, you're paying attention to kind of the more superficial conversation of just like, oh, dude, that guy just got turned into a monkey. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, Nimrod is walking around and he is a Neanderthal. And we just kind of accept that. He's a Neanderthal who speaks perfect English. I um, love Nimrod. <laughs> and um, But this is one of the reasons that I went and looked up the, the origin of the name Nimrod and it was uh, Nimrod was a king who basically uh, went in defiance of God. Um, And so if you think, okay, well, he's, he's named Nimrod. He is biblically referencing this king who is going against God. He's not a king, but he does lead uh, a lot of people in the story. He does push the story. He does go against his quote unquote God. Um, So there are lots of, little metaphors that I think are being played around with in here. Um, if you could like annotate this episode, there, there would just be little ticks all over. It's very referential. And I think that that helps. I, I don't know it. The people who are so tied to uh, one reading of it, I don't really understand. Yeah. If you, if you worry about, you know, exactly how the plot works, you're, you're kind of missing the point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, God, there's so much to talk. I mean, you 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 could annotate this. You could literally sort of go through the 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 the, the story, you know, sticking little notes all over it that refer to extensive footnotes, and and wouldn't that be an ironic way to uh, to approach it? Right. <laughs> you could basically um, break this down like minute by minute, and then like yeah. categorize all the things you're going on. Yeah. I, I, want, yeah. I wanted to see how it works, so I dismantled it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, God. Uh, can we can we talk about the great chain of being? That might be an interesting uh, direction to take this. The great chain of being. Yeah, are you familiar with the uh, concept there, Jack? Um, is the is that the um? <clears throat> you better. Well, remember. that's it. My sure. Let gone. me. I'll just. Is I'll that just, like the Elizabethan worldview? You know, of the um. Well, that's basically uh, God's on top, and the microbes are on the bottom, and uh, yeah. you know what. 
what happens is it, evolution that's Tilliard and the Elizabethan world picture, isn't it? With right. all the you know the arrangement of the angels in hierarchies and stuff. Right. It's it's it, things. Evolution is a progression from higher to lower, and that we do that we are like uh, ultimately, and then in this story, the highest um, would be light, right? You know, our well, angelic teacher. Josiah, Josiah is the survey creature. You know, they, they yeah. this 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 ship lands on this planet, and the light sends the survey out into the world. And the survey's job is to become a part of the evolutionary cycle of the planet, so that light can study it. And he he goes through stages because that's how they think of that's because you have to think of the ship and light and the creatures on it as representing a manifestation of a particular view of things, right? This hierarchical view. Um, this stagist view, this uh, reductionist view, and that makes perfect sense because they're cataloging and exploring, and, and we know what catalogers and explorers are actually doing. They're paving the way for empire, you know. So it's never made explicit, but tacitly we know what the project is. It's basically the it's the advanced scout, the advanced scout of an imperial project. So of course they have that view. So survey the survey goes out into the world, and because they have this pre-existing view, the survey encounters the evolution on Earth in a certain way. It encounters it with that built-in assumption of the rising through stages from the lower to the higher, and it, it arrives in Victorian England. And the, the 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 ideology of Victorian England is basically that you have the you know the the with evolution now becoming part of the ideology of victorian england despite the fact that it's ostensibly scandalous and overturning everything it actually it actually beds down very quickly and easily into the into the political and ideological mainstream and the establishment view of things very very quickly actually by the time darwin publishes the origin of species everybody's like no by the time he publishes the descent of man everybody's like yeah yeah, so So, yeah it, it encounters this world so the survey thinks oh well the thing to do is to be a big, rich, upper-class white guy, a man of property. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what the survey aims to be. And ultimately, of course, he aims to rule the British Empire because he thinks that's got to be the top of the evolutionary chain, hasn't it? The king, you know. So I get rid of the queen, and then I'm the king, and then I'm at the top. Right. So that's that's you know, and then that's why the whole thing happens because this there is a chiming, a, a, a similarity, a tessellation between the values of this this alien sort of advanced scout and the society that emerges into and it's based on the idea of you know the 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 idea of turning evolution into uh the idea of of hierarchy the idea of a justification of hierarchy because we were talking sorry oh no um i was just gonna say and i think that that idea of hierarchy I, i think that that's why we have the religious figures and Nimrod looking at light as a religious figure from his past mm. and the notion of being haunted, uh, so a, a kind of life after death. We have all of these really, I just keep saying biblical because that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's where my head's at. Uh, you know, you have Josiah. Josiah is another biblical character, king. And, you know, we have our our main alien come to earth in the form of an angel whose name yeah. is Light. Yeah. Um, not, not reminding us of Lucifer at all. Well, Ace actually calls him Lucifagus at one point, doesn't she? Right. Which is a, a pun on, I think, it's deliberately meant to remind us of the idea of Lucifer. Right. And and so I think it, it's hard to not just kind of, and, and maybe that's where we have a sense of it doesn't quite make sense literally. It's hard to follow the plot, um, but there's enough arrows pointing in the same direction that you kind of start to just get this feeling that the episode is going toward 
Um, and I don't mind that kind of storytelling, honestly. Uh, it just feels very lived in and that you're supposed to kind of go back and rewatch and pick up some of these extra um, little connections throughout. Well, it's, 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 it's avant-garde this it's, it's mm. surreal and, you know, it's, it's associational and symbolic and it's, it's very, very literary. Um, it's amazing mm. that this went out at like seven o'clock, seven forty-five, or whatever it was weekday evenings on BBC one. I mean, yeah. the world, the world in which that could happen has gone. You know? Absolutely. That, that, that world has gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> that this could get made in the first place and then broadcast in that time slot on that channel <laughs> as a child show. Yeah. I, yeah. Mean, I mean, we now, we now live in a world where like heaven sent is considered this, uh, you know, really avant-garde kind of piece of television. The doctor is mm. doing heaven sent, which is so, <laughs> so annoying. I mean, there are, there's lots of things I like about that, but I, it's so annoying because it, it just, it so desperately wants to be a perfect piece of machinery where, you know, in the end, the last cog turns and the last wheel spins and everything clicks into place. And suddenly you have a perfectly balanced picture and everything makes perfect sense. So all the geeks can go, oh, yes, I see how that bit fits in here right. and that bit fits in there. And yes, I mean, and it's so, you know, people talk about it as this great sort of mysterious, surreal masterpiece. It's it's not a bad episode. I don't hate it, but it's not that. It's it's actually aggressively sort of uh, the other way. You know, it's aggressively trying to be rational and uh, understandable and explicable and to make perfect mechanical sense. Whereas something and like this focused on character instead of on some kind of grander concept. Whereas yeah, this is, I mean, if anything, if anything, what we're saying is, I mean, what's confusing about Ghostlight is that it doesn't focus on individual, like, plot mechanics and what characters are thinking at any given time in the service of dealing with these bigger ideas. And yet there's a lot of really good characterization in it. Oh, right. and I'm, every, not, I'm, not, I'm every, not criticizing that. I'm saying, like, Every character done, has their journey. and right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there, there's yeah. a lot of emotional moments. There's the wonderful moment where Mrs. Pritchard goes to see Gwendolyn and they've both they've both snapped out of it and they've both remembered and that that amazing scene and uh, and then they both get turned to stone um mm -hmm. it's so sad uh, just just after she looks back she's looking back to the past and then she looks back and she gets turned into a mineral which ch chimes with what you were saying earlier about Lot's wife yeah and I mean that's it's the same reason that uh you know Lot's wife looks back mm. and how, how dare she look back and uh miss the life she is leaving is it essentially yeah. um, and look upon what god is doing to sodom and gomorrah which is kind of uh, the firestorm program isn't it yeah so I, I think there's just so many parallels it, it's hard to not talk about how they all interrelate because it's just it's uh, to me it is a better story to have something that you can go back to and find different ways to connect it and that you have different perspectives uh, like you said, that's a very literary approach to be able to have a text that can be read in more than one way, support more than one kind of perspective, and be successful in more than one perspective. Um, and to okay. pull all sorts of signs and signifiers into the mix, and to and to do it with a, a you know an awareness and sometimes a double and a triple awareness of the fact that it's doing it. It's right. you know even to the point where it brings 
Doctor Who references in. You know, it 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 make it's got this system of references where you get references to Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde and Conan Doyle and all this sort of the, the, Mrs. Yeah. Gross. It's a reference to the Turn of the Screw, and you've got Reading Jail that's mentioned and all this. And then at the same time, you've got a direct reference to the the great Doctor Who story set in the Victorian era. The Doctor says, "Is that a Chinese fowling piece?" Which any any Doctor Who fan knows is a reference to the Talents of Wang Chiang. And then there's a bit where the Doctor says, "Who who said Earthmen never invite their." their ancestors around to dinner that's a quote from douglas adams so it's it's bringing itself into this system of references it's it's postmodern in a good way for once <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah and i think i think like we said before and i, I know we kind of keep coming back to this if you focus on exactly how it fits together you're missing the point um if you focus on exactly what is going on what exactly the doctor is forcing ace to confront um you're missing the point he's he's putting her in a position to confront something that she sees as a weakness. And after, uh, I would argue that she does get to have a bit of a revelation because she goes from thinking she did this horrible thing in burning down a house into knowing that maybe they didn't destroy the ghost completely then, but she's going to destroy it later. Uh, so the thing that she feels this horrible regret and has defined her as this awful person that was the result of an emotional trauma um, now becomes something that she can feel proud of because eventually she burns down the fucking evil haunted house and yeah. it really is evil and fucking haunted. Yeah. Um, so you get a little bit of science and a little bit of non-science and it goes together still. Um, even though it's the non-science is made science by making it alien, it's still fucking magic. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just, yeah, I, I, I find so far every detractor that people have, I find a way to just not have any issue with it because it works out somewhere else in my head. So, well, this is kind of what we did with Planet of the Ood as well. I mean, even I came into that one with some reservations, and you guys talked me out of them. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, you're you're right about Ace's journey. I it's it's very true. She has the wonderful bit at the end where she says, "I wish I'd blown it up instead," and. You know, and the the wonderful it's an ad lib actually, Sylvester McCoy's last line. He's supposed to say something else, but he just ad libbed in in studio. He said wicked instead, which is such an incredibly clever um you know, ad lib because it's it's Ace's, you know, eighties teen speak used approvingly um by him because of what she's just basically she's you know, she's she said, Yeah, I'm not ashamed of having committed an act of criminal damage or violence or whatever i'm proud and he's 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 proud of her for thinking that way because, because these earlier. sorts of things should be torn down but it's also victorian terminology isn't it mrs pritchard calls calls gwendolyn wicked yeah so yeah well and the fact that ace's catchphrase is explicitly an inversion of this idea of like the sexual licentiousness definitely yeah. speaks to kind of where cartmel was thinking in terms of what ace's character was i think yeah I mean, she's, she's almost a thumb in the nose to these kinds of ideas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it would be hard for me to say at the beginning of the episode, when the doctor asks her to talk about this, and she has basically a panic attack and an emotional breakdown over it and refuses to talk about it, versus the end of the episode where not only can she talk about it, she owns it, and he's like, fuck yeah, you did that thing. The seventh doctor, even if you don't know why he's doing something, he always ends up acting in a way that empowers someone else. Maybe he didn't really mean to empower control in the way he did, but it doesn't really matter in the end to me. He still did it, and she still got to have a really cool um, extension to her story as a character. And 
it matters to me in shows like this to even have that kind of representation where she's still kind of a morally questionable character. Um, that whole situation does not really get resolved so much as moved off Earth and kind of repackaged and repurposed. But I don't know. I, I think so much that this era of Doctor Who for me is is really completely about um, Seven and Ace and how they're bringing out the best in each other despite themselves. The, the, the seventh doctor is one of the most, you know, instinctively revolutionary doctors. Mm. He's, he's, he's one of the doctors that wants to, you know, he, he sees bad stuff going on and his, his instinct isn't to say, Hmm, you know, how can we encourage people to, you know, be more responsible and uh, change gradually and uh, vote for the right people. His response is, yeah, let's fuck this up. <laughs> let's stride in and smash this up. Mm. Which uh, I I love him for that. I love him for that. That's what he does. I mean, you you earlier Daniel was saying about how this story reminds you of like uh, early Doctor Who, um, and I I that that's very I think that's very true. And one of the things about that that um, uh, I think is very reminiscent is the way the Doctor walks into a situation that is sort of poised in a moment of it's just about to reach crisis point, but it's not. Nothing's quite happening. And the doctor walks in and just by being there, um, his presence just stirs the shit up to such an extent that a crisis comes along. And by the time he's walked out, things are better, you know, um, which is it's not always true of Hartnell. But you see it in in the in the better Hartnell stories, the better early stories, I think, um, more consciously and deliberately here. But um, well, they, they've I mean, I think that kind of where I land on the McCoy area in general is that this is this is explicitly making the kind of Doctor Who that we've kind of always talked about in terms of what, you know, making a lot of what was implicit in some of the earlier stuff explicitly uh, just kind of texts all of a sudden. Mm. That the mm. Doctor is walking around and being an explicitly revolutionary figure and being an explicitly leftist figure as opposed yeah. to, you know, oh, we can kind of read this into certain moments, you know, kind of earlier on. And not that there wasn't, like, explicit leftism earlier in the show, but it really feels like this is kind of like the Doctor, you know, this is the Doctor, this is our Doctor because this is a Doctor written for people like us, you know? Yeah. Um, and this, do- uh, this Doctor, this Doctor's attitude is, yeah, if you're angry about the fact that your friend has been the victim of racist violence, and then you encounter the repressed gothic ghost of, you know, empire, Victorian science and uh, uh ideology and the ideology of the british empire which is of course you know to a large extent the source of this racism that's still causing people these problems in 1983 and you encounter that ghost still there in in your psychic landscape still haunting the world then yeah burn the fucker to the ground that's good that's his attitude <laughs> uh, you you would you would be hard pressed to imagine the seventh doctor doing the uh, bind of the zygon speech and uh, yeah. the zygon inversion right that's right yeah yeah for goodness sake, can't somebody just make a nice, neat, comfortable, liberal compromise, please? <laughs> can't we let the Victorian gentlemen live and do their thing on one side? Yeah. And, you know, can't the uh, poor little uh, Indian girls who are getting uh, racially uh, attacked, can't they just uh, learn to stand right for themselves a little bit better? You know, mm. like, come on, everybody be nice to each other. No. No, no, we can't because no, I... you know, your your system is fucked up. You know, so if you're sitting at the top of this pyramid saying, you know, just can't you just be happy down there? No, fuck you. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really the thing. It's you know the whole if 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 you're not angry, you're not paying attention. 
Yeah. I think there's a lot that I take for granted about Ace that's, you know, I go back and I watch and she feels so fucking edgy because there is a moment where she not only he's sitting there calling her the noble savage again, like at the beginning and talking about her ankles and she's my ankles aren't showing wearing boots. Uh, She is always on top of him making sure that she is measured for exactly what she is worth. And I feel like one of the things that I like so much about this story is that she thinks the doctor is trying to undermine her by getting her to talk about this uncomfortable thing from her past. But in reality, she comes around um, and no one is really being undermined. Everyone is being given what they want. It just so happens when the people in who want to take over the country really start once the bad guys get the power, they don't know what to do with it is essentially what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so instead you have Ace who her bad past evolved before she even real- realized it. It was a good thing before she knew it was a good thing. It, it never actually was a bad thing that she burned it down except for the fact that it went on her record and she had issues and all that kind of shit. Mm. Um, fuck the police. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think whenever we have a situation where we are going purposefully to the Victorian era to tell a story, it is always because the Victorian era had a rule for everything. And so when you have a character like Ace, who is just like, there's not a rule I haven't met that I don't want to break mixed with all these different levels of, well, the, the rules of science, the rules of religion, the rules of nature, the rules of, uh, these different societies, um, the cataloging, it does kind of feel like there are just several parallel metaphors running throughout the whole story um, that really are the story. Yeah, really. I mean, one of the things that's happened culturally since this story came out is the rise of uh, steampunk and steampunk. There is some, there is some very good work. Uh, There's some stuff that I love in that genre. Um, It's kind of, it's kind of usually on the fringes, the outskirts of the genre, not the, not the sort of classic, steampunk as we think of it as a pure genre but there is some good stuff in steampunk but generally speaking it's a genre that i have a a great deal of trouble with and that's not really a controversial opinion these days lots of people have come around to that but it's you know and the the reasons are or should be fairly obvious it's kind of this loving fetishistic reinvocation of a period that wasn't just about lovely brass things and you know walnut polished technology and so on it's, it was a period that was also about the 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 rise of a imperial global system and uh, you know millions of exploited and brutally oppressed native peoples all over the world and dark satanic mills and all that and and steampunk has so often just left that out of its yeah. of its invocation of that period and it really if you go back to the victorian era without in some way addressing that yeah this is the point at which the british empire was committing you know 20 holocausts a year somewhere in the world and uh, yeah. you had people crammed into rooms you know tend to a room because they had to be in the factories you know if you if you reinvoke this era without acknowledging those things then that's a political move that's an ideological move you're you're saying something even if you're saying nothing um and i think you you kind of put a nail on it when you said it's a fetishism of kind of the victoriana um because you could do retrofuturism in the same way that steampunk is kind of inspired by a certain retrofuturism 
and still acknowledge class issues sure. and still acknowledge sexism and racism. You can do intersectional steampunk. Mm. Have I read it? No. Um, but I don't really read anymore. Uh, so I'm not the best person to talk about it. Um, but it could be done. Uh, and I would argue that that is kind of one of the ways that we still see people go back to the Victorian era to make stories interesting is when we are acknowledging levels of class and um, privilege. And I think that this does this on more than one level because we have both the alien level, we have the Doctor and Ace, uh, and then we have Victorian society where it's kind of accepted that he has a Neanderthal for a butler, but like people don't question it that much. They're just kind of like, man, he's ugly. Well, you get the whole riff with Mackenzie looking at him and he spots the ethnic difference and he interprets it in terms of the racist categories of, of his society. You know, it's exactly. always, oh, he's, a, he's a lazy gypsy, um, which is more, of course, it's, it's still linked to the whole idea of the, uh, the racial discourse that gets uh, bound up in uh, this perverted version of, of it. Well, we're talking, we're talking about social Darwinism. We're talking about mm-hmm. social Darwinism. And I, you know, and from the almost the first shot of the episode, I'm thinking of Heart of Darkness and all the other literary references we've had. So there, there is an aspect, I think, to this story that is riding on the waves of previous stories. It, it does seem to trust that the audience has a fair amount of background knowledge and is willing to just kind of roll with it. Um, and I understand the kind of pr- production points that people made. I'm, I'm almost of the opinion that even if they were able to make some more of these uh, connections for the audience, they'd still have a hard time because it is very heavily metaphoric um, in its kind of juxtaposition of the characters. Well, when you have characters named Light and Control, exactly, and Nimrod, I mean, you're you're, you, I mean, that, that's just a that's a big signpost that we're meant to interpret this in a metaphorical way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is meant to be either allegorical or it's meant to be a fable or it's meant to be something non-literal. And and, um, that, and that it's a huge pileup of various different metaphorical systems as well. So you can look at it from one angle one time and then watch it again and look at it from another angle. Um, which, and that's a positive thing. Totally. And it, it works perfectly in terms of the conscious yeah. themes of the story, which is all about how you can you if you try to nail things down into these narrow categories, you end up perverting and uh, distorting uh, the, the things you're ostensibly trying to disinterestedly catalog. You're trying to work out what it what it means. You know, you end up with something that's, you know, I, you, I, I found I found out how it worked by taking it apart. Now it doesn't work anymore. Um, right. That that critique of this. Um, deeply ideological, this deeply imperial, um, hierarchical, ideological view of certainty. It's critiqued not only in the themes openly, but it's critiqued in how the story is constructed, which is that the story is very deliberately and openly constructed of all these different perspectives piling up on each other. It's really clever. Yeah, and I mean, I I think there are more little parallels that just keep coming up. I'm like, Oh wow. You could really, you could talk about eugenics in terms of this. You could talk about kind of liminal understandings of beings. If we're talking about categorization, one of the issues that uh, they're kind of struggling with throughout the story is what, what do you do with those things that exist outside of a category? Do you just kind of shove it, lock them up in a corner and try and ignore them because they're bothering you or, 
do you really try and understand it? And the idea that true understanding means that you will never have a true understanding, which is oddly for such kind of a Western ideological story, uh, kind of Eastern Buddhist thinking like, oh, okay. Well, the issue is we're trying to know one thing when the fact that what we can know is that that is unknowable because it is always changing and it is always dependent on who's there. And um, I, I think I keep kind of returning to this, but I really like this story because all of the characters have agency of some kind. All of them seem to be relatively in control of their fates, even when they're being hypnotized by the other dude. They still get to come out as individuals um, in a situation, even little details like the fact that they don't kill the help and that the help is smart enough to know to leave the fucking house. And, you know, maybe they should have paid attention to them. We're like, okay, uh, nobody stays at this house after dark. So come on, let's go. And that's not a, a looking down your nose at those characters either. It's just, well, they understood a way to deal with the situation and they found it. Um, so it, I really see the only people who are criticized by the actual writing of the episode is are really like the patriarchs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I ain't and mad at that, that. That critique of of that worldview was was also there in Victorian society. It was mm. imminent in Victorian society. You had lots of people in Victorian society making these sorts of critical noises. And and some of them are mentioned in this story. Lewis Carroll is mentioned. He's one of them. Jared oh, um, yeah. uh, Manley Hopkins, uh, Wild Engels, for God's sake. You know, th- th- this, this critique of that imperialist, hierarchical, top-down, property-based, you know, fix all the butterflies in place and then you've then you've achieved knowledge that was that was in victorian society as as an emerge as an emergent property to go back to that um and i think that's that's something that this story kind of brings out not only in the literary references but also in the way some of the characters behave as you were saying and some of the way they they, their agency struggles against the uh the 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 setup they found themselves in Gwen- Gwendolyn is a deeply conflicted figure. There's a part of her, I think, that loves the excitement of being one of the baddies. You know, I think maybe the Doctor's got a point that she enjoys mm. arranging the trips to Java, but she's deeply conflicted. Um, and you know, she puts the she puts the male clothes on, and she she seems almost more open to escaping uh, Josiah's mental stroke ideological domination when she's wearing the the men's clothes she has that breakdown she starts to question everything and uh mrs pritchard quickly steps on that and says uh, well it's cut actually sadly it's it's it, it was filmed but it was cut from the final product there's a scene just after gwendolyn's had her breakdown where mrs pritchard says get out of those clothes and go and put on a dress and after that gwendolyn's kind of reabsorbed and and Redvers, of course, again is a very conflicted figure. And Nimrod, he goes through this journey where he's uh, he's totally integrated, he's totally subservient, and by the end he's rejected Josiah and Light. You know, it's mm. the, the 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 critique is imminent in in the in the in the problem. I think this story shows you that as well. I love the way the characters rebel. You know, um, control rebels and climbs her way out of the out of the dark hole she's been locked into and Nimrod renegotiates his position and they all do. Some of them hit a dead end. But, um, control is just so good. <laughs> I love control. I, I love her weird raspy voice. I love that 
she starts out as a monster and by the end of the story without dumbing her down or without being dumb toward the story or audience, she finds her own voice um, to at least a degree that she gets to say really meaningful things. She gets to talk about not being in the gutter and she gets to go off and live her own life. So even if we don't get some kind of closure or real true understanding of the narration, I I think the messages and those themes that the episode are really circling around are all about, again, ideas of revolution, fighting against those confines and really understanding what kind of systems go into supporting that society and that structure. The fact that um, you're saying that Miss Pritchard actually said, uh, scolded Gwendolyn over putting her dress. She may be having Ace on one side saying, let's dress like boys and having another female figure on the other side saying, no, you better fucking stay in that dress. Um, Even having transgressing categories. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, that's what what real evolution is like evolution. And that's the, the criticism of the great chain of being thing, at least in terms of how it applies to the natural world, and this is all through Stephen J. Gould, um, for anyone who remembers Shabcast 23, um, you know, the criticism of that is that it, it, it implies this hierarchy, this kind of progress, this, this idea that one thing leads to another inexorably. Whereas the reality is, and, and even Josiah has his, um, uh, his moths that have this gradation from one color to the other, from the, uh, from the country to the uh, industrialized cities where they have uh, been covered in the suit and darkened. You know, these are the pepper moths, a very famous um, experiment. What we learn and what, you know, kind of queer theory, Shana, <laughs> I'm just going to put my note, put my thumb on it, mm-hmm. um, teaches us is that these, these boxes, that these categories are, if not meaningless, are uh, much less important than the variation between them. Yeah. That, that everything is a spectrum and that whenever you have a binary, all dichotomies are false dichotomies. All and forms so, are transitional forms. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, there's, you know, if you talk about the biology, you can talk about typology and species concepts get solidified over time. You know, there are, there are some, there is some kind of debate about that. I mean, it gets more complicated, but certainly um, in terms of social interaction, I mean, you know, what, what Ace is doing by putting uh, Gwendolyn in the, um, the tuxedo is to show her that there are other options. And I don't think that, you know, a character like Ace, I mean, Ace seems, <laughs> even though she doesn't particularly like the dress, she seems equally comfortable in the dress and in the, the tuxedo. You know, I think Ace. Been... I think Ace loves the dress. I think she loves the dress and the tuxedo equally. I think it's just it's it's just like Ace to complain think, about th- the dress, even though I she think likes she it. hates being forced into the dress. But I think she likes the dress overall. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if we're going to talk about characters in Victorian garb, I guess it's Edwardian. I mean, Pyramids of Mars. It's Sarah in the dress. You yeah. Know? Uh, again, connecting right back to old Doctor Who. Well, <clears> a, there's a lot of concentration on what Leela wears in Talons as well. Actually, isn't there? Now I come to think of it. Yeah. Shit, we got to do talents now. <laughs> All right, but yeah, evolution is is it's an inherently revolutionary idea. You know, it busts apart the idea of static uh, categories, and you know, everything's in transition, everything's fluid, everything's on its way to becoming something else, and everything's related to everything else. And there's no there's no hierarchy of being. It's all just a great big family. And uh, okay, even in the diagrams, like the tree, you know, you, they usually put you know, the, the man on the top of the tree and the protozoa at the bottom. But even right. that's that's a distortion 
of the of the real ideas. I mean, this is why Marx and Engels were so incredibly excited about evolution. They 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 looked upon it as a sort of an, a revolutionary busting apart of the sciences in a new direction. Um, well, and-, and so it's ironic that evolution very quickly becomes this uh, very um, heavy sort of ideology of hierarchy. Well, it's it became co-opted by ruling classes too. I mean, yeah. it became social social Darwinism is a perversion, a literal perversion, a literal uh, twisting of Darwinism to suit a well, particular you, ideological end. You if know? you look at if you look at the, the the talk about it at the time in in English society at the time between Origin of Species and the Descent of Man, you can almost see the English ruling class going to itself. We're all monkeys. We're all monkeys. Oh, oh, oh! No, hang on a minute. This explains why the poor are poor, and they always will be poor, and we shouldn't feel guilty about it. That's all right then. You, you can almost watch them doing it. Well, and I think that that part of what I like about this story is that we, through all of these different characters and their situations, really we're talking about you know the nature of good and evil to some degree. Um, whereas religion might have the answers that. You know, Satan, always evil. God, always good. Once you go into science, if you're accepting that science, everything is changing, Ace doesn't have to carry her past with her or feel like that has somehow made her an unchangeably bad person. Um, And it's the doctor who basically goes back and shows her, well, you did this for a good reason before you even knew what it was. And that's how evolution and nature work. Well, this is just how things happened to be and and that's how they needed to be it doesn't make it good it doesn't make it evil um you know it might be good today it might be evil tomorrow it depends on the perspective that you're coming at it from and i think arguably what the doctor is is really doing is leveraging perspectives throughout the story meeting the different characters and saying okay why is it that you think that why is it that you think that way and does that make sense to me so when he is making these um making promises to control without really knowing if he can fill them, fulfill them in a way he does, because ultimately he's, he knows he wants to help her to gain agency and have some sort of control over her, her journey. And, and that's as much as he can do. And because he can see from others perspectives, um, that is what makes him good versus the characters in the story who are so stuck in their own world and what needs to happen for them to have what they want, um, that that is ultimately what stops progress. So it doesn't fully fault and pit religion and science against each other. No. But it does talk about if you try to have that mentality, it's really that mentality that is more wrong than anything else because it, it stops the conversation. Yeah. I, I love the the phrase leveraging perspectives. I think that's that's fantastic. Um, I mean, and and the doctor just has this inherent sort of disregard for social conventions and and things like you know he walks into the living room and there's the Reverend Matthews and Josiah, and by the logic of their society, he should pay very very close attention to what they're saying and ignore everything else. And he's far more interested in the butler. You know, he mm-hmm. he's far more interested in talking to the butler and working out what his take on things is. Uh, and that you see stuff like that all the way through this story and all the way through the seventh doctor's era. You see it in Paradise Towers. You see yeah. it in Happiness Patrol. You see it in all the greats. And it's one of the things I love about him. And it's why it's why he's such a mercurial and such a, a catalytic element, um, it, it, you know, in, in this uh, in this setup. 
I'd love to get back to what you were just saying now about the um, the opposition between science and religion, or rather the fact that that because one of the things I really love about this story is that it raises, it looks for a moment like it's going to be the theme is going to be oh um, evolution was great, the church and religion were stupid about it, we should all believe in science uh, and ignore religion, just like you know classic doctor who of the past like mask of mandragora and, and and things like that which had these very simple sort of didactic lessons to teach us about how mm. religion bad superstition bad science good um whereas really this story it looks like it's going there for a minute and then it does a total 180 and it doesn't for a moment compromise on the stupid bigotry of someone like you know reverend matthews mm. um and so, some of these some of these people in the early days of evolution, you know, these religious objectors, they were incredibly stupid about it. And it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a perfectly valid thing to satirize, but thankfully it, that's something that completely went away. That's all gone away now. Yeah. Today. Yeah. No. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Racism all... too. Post-racial yeah. society. What? Yeah. <laughs> all these issues went away around January, 2009, when Barack Obama became the president of the United States. Except that this story knows perfectly well that that didn't happen and it goes out of its way to tell us that it didn't happen because it's the whole thing is catalyzed by the fact that a girl in 1983 is still facing the same sorts of issues, the same sorts of ideas. And, you know, just around the corner, she's got the ruin of this Victorian mansion and it's still haunted by all this stuff. So the story is saying, yeah, this the Victorian era never went away. Basically, that's what it's saying to us in 1989. The Victorian era never went away, you idiots. Um, well, and quite literally, the ghost of the Victorian era is in the walls. Yeah, you know, the structure and, of the yeah. You know how much of of London and Britain still has structural um, reminders of the Victorian age? Absolutely, yeah. You uh, can walk, you can walk around. US, if this had been set in the U.S., it would be on a it would be on a plantation or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think also, I mean, we have. But Again, I just, just wanted kind to, of... can I just finish my thought? Sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. I was going to say that I really love the way the story doesn't fall into a simple sort of science versus religion binary. It instead complicates both categories so that you see that they've both got their problems. Sorry. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to add to that, I think we have all this, it's just a really wealth of images to support that. Um, the whole idea that Victorian science was all about taxidermy and <laughs> freezing these beings in a moment of death or suspended animation mm. and and collecting them and in drawers so that a man in a drawer uh, does not immediately stand out in some ways, maybe to the audience, but not to the uh, hypnotized Gwendolyn. But what I th- also find fascinating then is that when these things come back to life, that the life they have is terrifying and that defies their current understanding of science or religion or what the situation is also. So there is that nice kind of back and forth between it doesn't really matter who's right. It just matters that we recognize how we're wrong. And maybe it doesn't matter so much as knowing the truth as knowing that we can't really know the truth. Um, And, and, you know, that's different approaches. Uh, There are definitely people who approach religion more as a guiding uh, voice and a helpful metaphor and story versus seeing it as the rote truth. And to be able to talk about all these kind of issues with perspective um, 
in a story that is essentially a haunted house story. I, I think that story is just really complicated, but at the same time, pretty tightly written. Yeah. So, yeah. It's densely written as well, isn't it? Mm. It's yeah. But um, yeah, it, 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 exactly. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't end up being an attack on religion so much as just it's saying, I mean, I think what's going on is that the story is saying that there is a kind of religion that is all about, um, well, I mean, I'm using this word a lot today, but it's all about hierarchy. It's all about the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the angel as the authority figure. And light is really a, uh, he's, he's really a syncrasis of all the syncrasis of all this, of all these different authority principles. You know, he's a man, he's white, he's an angel. He's also a scientist. He's also an explorer. He's, he's not, he's not, there's, there's it, at bottom, at the deepest level, these things aren't opposed to each other. They're actually the same. And the, the the thing that makes them the same is that their their project is to assert control, to 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 assert power and dominance downwards. You know, the the kind of science that he practices. Because Light is a scientist as well as being an angel. He's both at once. He's the synthesis of the two things. You know, and the kind of science he does is this kind of deeply reactionary science. He doesn't want things to change. So he wants to literally turn them to stone or burn them off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he wants to have his catalog nicely, neatly written, and then he'll understand everything. And then it's implied the way will be clear for the, you know, the next phase, which, you know, if we know anything from history, the next phase after the exploration and the cataloging will be the invasion. And um, you know, it's, it, it that's, he's got more in common with that perverted social Darwinist idea of evolution than the, 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 the squabbling naturalists and bishops realized they had more in common than they realized. Yeah. I think that's what it's ultimately getting at. And that's really quite startling, you know, for, for, for something that was aired, as I say, about seven o'clock on BBC one for kids. That's, a, that's quite something. Yeah. And well, it outdoes it's... 90% of all steampunk really does it does um before most steampunk was even written (laughs) yeah i just was gonna say jack is that really an accomplishment um (laughs) not that i don't like steampunk i really like steampunk i just know that most of it is written by not the people i want to read steampunk written by um yeah defeating steampunk is kind of low-hanging fruit yeah sorry well it's 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 I mean, it's something that we've kind of touched on a couple of times, and I don't know. Um, I mean, we kind of finished my notes here, so I, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you guys kind of figure out what else you want to talk about. But I mean, we we've touched on this, and you mentioned a couple of times. Is this kind of uh, Jack? This, um, you know, that that the aesthetics of the Victorian era come with the ideology attached to some degree, mm-hmm. and that steampunk kind of pretends that that's not necessarily true. That we can kind of have the brass and the the pretty dresses and everything, and kind of ignore the context and. I think that if you're admitting that's what you're doing, I don't necessarily have an issue with that. I mean, that's, I mean, just, oh, I, if you're just fetishizing the object. I absolutely um, don't have a problem with somebody who, who just, you know, likes the dresses and the gear and stuff and likes yeah. dressing up. Knock yourself out. Um, and I realized that I was way more into that fandom, if you will, of, of steampunk than I really am of the literature. I, I kind of like the origin ideas of steampunk where they really were focusing on a very specific time of adventure stories mixed with victorian culture it's very much like writing this doctor who episode except also having kind of jules verne inspired science instead of aliens so clearly 
the idea of steampunk I am on board with. It's it has the same goals as all great science fiction. Um, it has the same issues as a lot of science fiction too, in that it gets co-opted by douche bros who just want to use it as an excuse to talk about pretty girls in corsets and ripping off corsets and dudes dudes getting to drive fucking big ships of some kind um, mm. and then fighting with them. And Well, in a lot of ways, the foundational text of steampunk was the Difference Engine, which was the William Gibson-Bruce yeah. Sterling collaboration. And uh, William Gibson being kind of the foundational cyberpunk author, and cyberpunk also has its issues, but Cyberpunk, at least as Gibson uh, does it in the in, in his early work, is explicitly about this sort of corporatized future in which human life is meaningless. And I think the difference engine is all about like saying, well, what if computing power came 150 years earlier and suddenly like connecting this corporatized future that he's imagining to this corporatized past, to this industrialized industrial revolution? Um, kind of idea and so kind of showing the kind of dehumanization that he's envisioning for the future is actually something that exists in the past and so steampunk yeah. can be done in this very i mean if you're doing it explicitly you can explore these ideological interests you can kind of look at these questions in some very far-reaching and, and i think sophisticated ways it's just that steampunk has kind of become almost uh, synonymous with its um aesthetics and with the the sort of um, the hobbyists playing with brass and and uh, wrought iron as opposed to um, something that really has a kind of a, a real heft behind it well mm. and putting it in the context of this episode real life steampunk i love the way that shit looks i have followed all kinds of diys but <laughs> in reality i cannot afford to be in that fandom you have to have money to be a fan of that shit, or have the time to be able to make it all yourself. So even for those who are fans within the fandom and seeing it from this perspective for an enjoyment of something, they're having to gloss over something if it's all shiny and perfect. And I think that that's ultimately a lot of what this story deals with, is if something is going to really be too good to be true, it's because we're avoiding something from the past um, mm. or avoiding something that may happen in the future. And it's all the same in the long run, especially if you're talking about a fucking time traveler. Um, at the end of the day, you have to face the consequences. It doesn't matter if it was something you haven't done or if it's something you're going to do. There will still be consequences and you will have to face them. Which is one of the great virtues of the Gothic. Uh, of course, it's a yeah. very gothic story. It's one of the the great, in you know, it, eternal virtues of that genre, which is that it insists upon the fact that the past will come and get you, uh, as it as it as it uh, as it will and, and as it should so often with these sorts of things. It's interesting what you say about uh, steampunk hobbyists. It's in, it's almost like you almost make them sound like Victorian naturalists. You know, you have to oh, kind God. of have the the leisure to sit around doing this stuff in the first place in order to do it. Jack, don't start me. <laughs> well, well, how much to of it be, is a wealthy white person, you know, a wealthy white privileged person hobby? Which could know, be where to, the kind of historical, the dehistoricized nature of so much actually existing steampunk right. could be, could just about maybe be where, where that comes from. I don't know. Right. I Possible. mean, the people that I know who are way into steampunk, or some of the people I know who are way into steampunk in real life, are people who don't recognize their privileges in society and probably do hmm. kind of broadly have, uh, you know, this kind of similar ideology to uh, the Victorian gentleman in yeah. the story, you know? 
Yeah, Although, no, to be I am Ruth- talking about someone specific, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to be fair, there is one person that I am talking about who really likes steampunk and writes uh, steampunk fiction that I have big issues with for all of the aforementioned reasons. You can tell me their name later. Yeah. <laughs> to be ruthlessly fair to steampunk, I think kind of this dehistoricization and this aestheticization and this fetishization is just something that kind of just happens anyway you know to well, just yeah. to, to every genre um it, every successful genre anyway just because of the nature of you know how we dissem- disseminate stories and and uh and commodities in in the in the world we currently have but i do think yeah i think maybe because of the nature of steampunk the because of the nature of the period it's representing i think maybe the contradictions just seem a little sharper and more more important i think that could be what's going on there one thing i want unless somebody else has something they want to say at this point i want to ask a question go for go ahead, it Jake. how do we feel about the way control talks because it's something that occurred to me on this rewatch that there's a there's a problem or a potential problem with the sort of pigeon english she uses the sort of patois that sounds almost a bit kind of racialized you know, it's I, almost like picking any speech sometimes. That made me a bit uncomfortable at times on this rewatch. Uh, for me, I will say as a character that goes literally from looking at one point, like she has as yet carved clay on her face. Yeah. She's so much taking her shape. I mean, she is she is one character that feels like her evolution is ongoing the entire time we see her. She is not the same character at the beginning as she is at the end in a very visual, drastic way. And I think that they do use the language to forefront that. <laughs> I I kind of read a lot of it to be, oh boy. Okay, so... <laughs> It, it really depends. You can say it's animalistic because she was an alien creature who is now learning American society. But then again, that that's huge othering. And well, what do we yeah. think about the fact that she ends up with these kind of mannerisms of a lady? That yeah, she's, that she's kind of that that's sort of her character direction is. It it know? kind of implies that the you know the the progress is still up to some kind of you know, Victorian middle-classness, doesn't it? I don't think that's what what it's really getting at, but I think you could very easily mistake it for that, which is a problem. So in in my notes, Jack, just to let you know, I put control as a lady and then an arrow and then said, fuck civilization, in quotes. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me... How can you criticize civilization when when you drink Starbucks coffee, Daniel? Does Daniel drink Starbucks? I I, I don't drink joke. Starbucks coffee, but you know, oh. yes. it's a joke. We, it's it's a there's a, a terrible um, former English politician who um, sort of epitomised that way of talking. Oh, about, you yeah. know, she said something about you know oh anti capitalist protesters, but they bought a drink at Starbucks. It's it's a sort of a joke about uh, you know how can you criticise Western civilization when you're sitting on something made by it? You know right right. Oh, you're doing that on your iPhone. Yeah. You know, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also think um, there is something to be said for when this episode was made that in response to Light and Josiah treating control the way they do, 
what she wants to be is not a lady. She wants to be ladylike. And I think there is definitely something to be said about the gender dynamics in this episode and the fact that, you know, Ace is fighting with being ladylike, but she's not a gentleman either, you know, both in her clothing and in her actions. And then we have another character whose goal is to become ladylike. And she talks about it sucking, and then she talks more about how she's kind of come into a position of ownership of that power of being quote-unquote ladylike. Um, so I, I think for me it didn't bother me quite as much just because she felt like she was being true to herself and her own motives, that she had been trapped in a cage, essentially, and while she was in that cage, the ladylike became her goal of getting out. Um, well, if we if we view it as, like, it's her decision, like, her choice to kind of, like, oh, I just kind of aesthetically like these manners and this sort of, like, way of being... You know, we yeah. can't really criticize that. Like, I mean, you know, like, like, yeah. I think that, I think that, like, to the degree that I was criticizing it before in terms of, like, oh, she becomes more ladylike and therefore it's sort of bad. We also, you know, Ace is in the story and Gwendolyn is in the story and there is this kind of questioning of those ideas all the way through. And so kind of having another character who says, well, actually, I do kind of like the, the frilly dresses and kind of being a quote unquote lady. I think that we can kind of salvage it and say, you know, it really, like, the story isn't saying that she's the best character there is, because we're obviously on Ace's side, who rejects that utterly, you know? It's just saying, like, oh, she made this decision, this is just what she likes. I mean, mm. in a way, it kind of connects back to Enlightenment, where the um, the Eternals just kind of take elements of the, uh, you know, the people that they've uh, kind of taken over, and um, just kind of embrace certain, um, you know, ephemeral qualities of them, almost as a game. Yeah, and I think you can kind of see control is is sort of doing that in this case. Yeah, that's that's really good. I like that. Um, I I have some of my own ideas about this. I think the key thing to remember is that she she's not integrated into the system in the same way that Josiah is by the end of the story. I mean, Josiah specifically, he's 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 totally integrated into the social system of Victorian Britain. He wants to become even more integrated to the point that he wants to run it right control control explicitly leaves it she she makes the decision to to leave to go away to to engage in well they go off i mean this is really the first era in the show's history where that character would have been a woman for a start um and she ends up the leader of this little group of rebellious refugees from british society you know the rebellious butler who's decided that he doesn't want to be a servant anymore the the madman who's decided that he doesn't want to be an imperialist anymore and and they're led by this woman and they're going off to do this different version of exploration which we see in redfers it's just pure delight you know at seeing all these creatures it's not an imperial project anymore it's just going to be exploration kind of like the doctors um so i think you got that um, you've got the already existing thing in the story where it's bringing up these tropes in order to just invoke them and then kind of subvert them. So I think the 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 pigeon English that she talks, it's a bit like all the references to you know Noble Savage and Eliza and yeah. all these things that it's bringing up in order to then twist them. I think it's still a bit problematic, to be honest, at the end of the day, because you have someone who is supposed to represent the completely disavowed 
the completely crushed, the completely oppressed, the locked away and hidden and forgotten of this system. You know, she's the, she's, um, she's the, uh, the, the pauper on the streets. And I think also by implication, she's maybe the, the colonial subject, you know, the, the, the subjugated person of person of the empire and Absolutely. her progress is to, you know, white ladylikeness with a posh voice. So I still think there's a problem, but I think this is metaphoric drift to a certain like yes, what we've done it, yes. is we've kind of said she represents all these things and this story is handling these issues so well to so many on so many levels but oh there's this one reading that kind of feels problematic certainly today maybe more so even than it did in 89 although i can't speak to how it, how it would have felt in britain in 1989 <laughs> um, well, I, I have absolutely I, no reference for that i, 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 mean, I can't I, pretend I, to have been thinking about it in quite these terms when i watched it when i was 13 so. <laughs> yeah uh, and i mean for me it's like okay well if i wanted to sit and talk about this from 2016 i would talk about the fact that there's no diversity in it and it's all yes. a bunch of white folk and should control have been a black woman would that have been better or worse uh, given well, the time if, period, if probably worse. Pigeon, if she's saying she speaks pigeon, then that's yeah. probably. I mean, for me, the language like the the freedom, the freeness, and and those sorts of those sorts of language doesn't twinge me as like explicitly racialized. It doesn't twinge to me as like an explicit. But that may be just me it, not like getting no, the, like the the nuances of what the language is in England versus the United States. No, I think you're right. I don't think it fits directly into anything recognizable in the real world there's just something about it that makes you think of that sort of thing uh, absolutely i mean I, I definitely agree with that i, I think that it, it manages to largely avoid being overtly problematic although certainly i mean it is something worth talking about i mean if it was if it was an american production and she was speaking like explicitly like you know african-american vernacular english and then like learn to speak like proper english by the end we would definitely call it out for that like you mm. know um but if she's not, I mean, I don't feel like she's speaking like with, you know, she's not like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I don't know, know, you know, Chim Chimney. <laughs> that was too good. Chimney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love him. <sighs> hey, look, you know, Perry's American accent. We can't talk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I get it. I think it it's an issue. I wouldn't, like, avoid talking about it or say it's not. But it also doesn't – it seems like it largely avoids the trope to me. Mm. Like, it doesn't feel like it's really wallowing in that in the way that it might. But, but it does like, – it's I've one thing a, about this story that does worry me, which is the fact that race is kind of absent. Um, right. I, I think – well, blaming the, Doctor Who in the 80s for being too white is like, I mean, we could say that about all of it. But this is a story that is explicitly setting out to, you know, a, a full frontal attack on, you know, imperial Victorian values. So that's a, that's a that's a gaping omission. You do get the fantastically caustic scene with Mackenzie spouting his racist bibble about um, about Nimrod, but um, and and you get an implied critique of the racism of Empire. But even so, it's kind of absent in a way that gender and class aren't. Right. Well, because gender and class were easier to talk about in the eighties. I mean, True. we still have issues talking about race. Um, even even the stuff that we basically recognize as still being problematic, we sometimes have a hard time talking about because, I don't know, we suck. Um, 
I, I do like, though, I think above all what, what kind of struck me about this episode is that there is a desire by those in charge to stop progress. Yeah. And um, part of accepting your faults and moving forward and making the world a better place is accepting progress um, and accepting that it will be uncomfortable and that it will be difficult, um, but that that will somehow be worth it. And uh, in, in those terms, it's a little simplistic. The fact that it has all these little parallel stories and images and so much metaphor and reference going on, I think is what makes this episode really interesting. Um, I think it still misses a lot, like we're saying with race, but again, if we want to judge this on the standards of 2016, it still has a lot to do in talking <laughs> about gender and class. <laughs> so, I mean, sure. it, it's kind of unfair to really point out one thing without pointing everything else out. It's so sad that this is, uh, this is the last classic Doctor Who. Um, cause it's, it wasn't the last that was aired, but it was the last that was filmed that the last scene of oh. the story is literally the last scene that was ever filmed for classic Doctor Who. Sylvester McCoy saying, wicked, that's it. Cut. Doctor Who is over, at least until it starts up again. And just, you know, my God, the last one they filmed was possibly the best or one of the best ever. What would have happened next? <laughs> uh, you know, the story of Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> Always stops mid-good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, back I mean, on a shit note. I'm kidding. There is there is this weird circularity too. I mean, and I think that was why because I knew this was the last one filmed. And I think that maybe that's why my headspace was so on um, the Hartnell era because there is this almost circularity to some of the ideas that it is kind of harkening back. It's almost like they knew it was over. You know, there there is this sense of like because it doesn't feel like it's 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 not doing the. I mean, it, it calls out Talos and Wang Chang like almost by name. But it's not like a lot of the other references don't feel like it's just doing the reference for reference's sake. It's explicitly trying to call back to these earlier ideas and saying, look at how much better we can do this now. Look at look at how much more sophisticated we can be at exploring some of these ideas. It's almost like like begging for 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 another year. It's almost like like it's doing the trial of a time lord right. Like if yeah. we view the trial of a time lord as you know, questioning does Doctor Who deserve to exist? Then, like at the end of the Trial of a Time Lord season, the answer is yeah, probably not. But the end yeah. of season twenty six is oh yes, fuck yes, this deserves to keep going on. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, Michael Gray had made his decision by this point. And so. and yet there is at least one writer uh, who has written about this story in terms of saying you know you can hear the nails being hammered into Doctor Who's coffin as you watch it. For this writer. This is, you know, like the coup de grace. After this, there's no chance that it's ever going to continue. It's so bad to that guy because it's impenetrable and it makes uh, no no sense and, you know, all these well, things. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're stupid. <laughs> sorry, that was mean. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. She's not sorry in the slightest. This is the, the same writer, actually, who in the preface to the book where he wrote that about Ghostlight said, Doctor Who's over and it's never, ever coming back. Uh, you know, get used to it before the revival. So, right. Is this somebody I've already called a douchebag? <laughs> I don't know. I can't even remember his name, to be honest. So, there we go. That works. Is this the discussion guy, Jack? No. No, it's okay. not. Okay. okay. Anyway, 
Well, we'll move on from that. Back to shit talking. I mean, talking <laughs> about Doctor Who. <laughs> Uh, Jack or Shannon, any further thoughts about Ghostlight or anything else we've talked about? Um, we've been going for a little over two hours now, so it's probably time to start thinking about wrapping up. Yeah, I, I could talk about this for you know hours and hours and hours. It's but to you know um you know, I I think I've covered most of the big ones at least in outline, and uh, I don't want to uh, go on for too long. So yeah, I, I'm 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 happy with what we've what we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to say anything else, it would just be another like. Man, Ace is just so great. Mm. There is, I, I really think, and maybe this is why I do forgive the doctor for forcing her to do something that is really painful. We get to see Ace deal with her ghosts and her issues while helping other characters deal with their own and finding her own way. And uh, what's her, Sophie Aldred? Yeah. Yeah just has some absolutely for me breathtaking moments that she gets to deliver a line here or there just serious moments where she really shines um and of course sylvester mccoy just always sparkles uh so there are just definite moments in this episode that felt like they were worth it even if i hadn't liked the rest of the episode or story rather and it just feels it just feels so much more ambitious and expansive than so much. I yeah. mean, the entire McCoy era is doing that. I've I've always said the McCoy era, if if Doctor Who, the entirety of Doctor Who was just the McCoy era, as uneven as it is, it would still be one of the greatest TV shows ever made. That, that those last three years, the, the the Renaissance is incredible. I mean, it's got a it's probably got a higher concentration of my all time top favorite stories than any other. It, set of three seasons in the consecutive seasons in the show's history. You got Paradise Towers. You got um, you got the Happiness Patrol. You got Great Show in the Galaxy. You've got this. You've got Curse of Fenric. You got it, 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 and it's all so much more ambitious and expansive and and thoughtful and playful than Doctor Who has been for a long time. You know, yeah. for a long time, even pretty much since season eighteen. I think um, there's a lot of stuff in the intervening years that I love. But even so, this is the these last couple of years. This is the last time the show, like the you know, the companion goes to bed in the middle of the story, and a night passes, and she wakes up the next morning, and things start up again. Uh, it, things like that just haven't been happening in the show for a long time. You know, really since like the like the Hartnell and Troughton eras, that sort of thing hasn't yeah. really happened. Um, and it's it's so interested in presenting you with those little new things like the, the doctor talking to the bug as it crawls over his hand things like that that you've that are so interesting and playful visually and in terms of the ideas and the storytelling it's just a, it's just and it's just a joy to watch it's a joy to watch and, and I those do love are the, the moments that i miss from contemporary who so much um as yeah. well i i usually refer to them as the quiet moments yeah in between the action the the, the ones that are really just about our characters and what it is like to be in this situation and not just the action, action, action. Yeah. And their little thoughts and their private moments. And yeah. well, you have that amazing scene where suddenly um, uh, Ace's memories and neuroses actually sort of, they, um, they become real. You hear the sirens, you see the oh, flashing yeah. blue lights. They're there because she's thinking about these things. And that this breakdown actually manifests materially in the world. 
I mean, I know it's meant to be metaphorical, but then the lines between what's actually happening and what's metaphorical, they're fuzzy all the way through this because it's the logic of how it works. Well, and, the show... and when the aliens disappear, it's at the speed of a thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like... And the Doctor like... restarts the clock at the end. Yeah. It's almost like the, uh, I mean, you know, the last story we did was the Silurians, which, you know, I, I mean, great story. I, I like the Silurians a lot. But, I mean, the issue we run into with a lot of the earlier stories is like, oh, there's plot enough for three episodes and we st- stretched it out to seven. <laughs> this is kind of the opposite. Like, you could yeah. imagine this being, I mean, I wouldn't want to see this as a seven-part story because it would get bloated and, and you know, just too much. But, mm-hmm. like, there's enough here that you could imagine this easily being a much, much longer story. Yeah. And the fact that we have these character moments that are kind of built in as well, it's kind of what, what you know, you we kind of complain about about some of the stuff that, you know, when we do have like a third Doctor story where, and then we're just going to drive around in, a, in, in Jeeps for a while and prove that, you know, we had a Jeep and, you know, it's yes. something to watch. And I've got, a, a, I've got a remote control, ergo science for the win, Joe. Right. <laughs> you know, it, instead of instead of like, oh, let's do a character moment, which would have yeah. been so much more interesting. Well, now, you know. and for me, I, I made the joke when we were watching, even the action has a little bit more of a sense of humor and um, fun to it because we, we literally have control. Look at someone have a fight or flight moment and jump out a window. <laughs> and I fucking love it. I, and she jumps out the window and I was like, action by havoc. Yeah. Um, and then immediately after the wonderful Michael Cochran with, of course, if she was a real lady, I wouldn't be in her boudoir. Right? <laughs> and so there are these tongue-in-cheek little silly moments just mixed right in. I, I don't know. I, I like it. It, it has a, all of the points that I generally like when I'm watching Classic Who. It's poetic. Yeah. I love it so much. I want to watch it again now. <laughs> well... Well, let's do a live com on it, guys. How does that sound? <laughs> I'm up for that. I'm totally up for that. Let's leave it a while, but let's do it. Yeah, no, no, I'm down. I'm down. Jack, uh, tell us where we can find you on the internet. You can find me by Googling Shibugan Graffiti or Eruditorum Press, and I have a podcast, and I have things that I write, and I have a Facebook and a Twitter and uh, uh, a Tumblr, and you can find me that way. Use your initiative. <laughs> A role for initiative, maybe. That's the, uh, you know, maybe it was a D&D joke all along. Enterprise and initiative. <laughs> Integrate yourself into the ideology of the British Empire. <laughs> Don't do that at all if you're going Don't to get do anything that. out of Jack Graham's writing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Jack for coming by once again. This was on short notice, but uh, I, I figured you'd be happy to come on for, for Ghostlight whenever. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, you know. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on this show. It's yeah, my favorite. It, it, One of it's, my all, favorite. it's always a pleasure for all of us. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. Unless, mm-hmm. uh, Shana, you have anything else to add? Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Shana. <laughs> love you. And until next time, the TARDIS is closed. Blah, 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 blah. Light! We thank James Bragg for the use of our theme song, Doctor Who Theme on Minimook. You can find his work at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 or at phoenix-flare.com. All our episodes can be found at oispaceband.lipson.com or on iTunes. You can find Oispaceband on Facebook or email us at oispacebandpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an irregularly updated blog at oispacebandblog.wordpress.com. Daniel is also the co-host of a weekly movie podcast called They Must Be Destroyed on Site, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find Daniel's Twitter and Tumblr at Daniel E. Harper, all one word, 
And you can find Shana's at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. We look forward to hearing from you.